morning, church, wherever you are online. If you have your Bible with you, please grab it and turn with me or flip to it on your app to John chapter 15, verse 11. And today we're going to be continuing on where we sort of left off last week. Last week we talked about the second week of Advent that is on the subject of peace, and this week is the third Sunday of Advent, and we are on the subject of joy. So let's continue on with this section of Jesus' words in John chapter 15, verse 11. Let's read together, brothers and sisters. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You know, church, this whole section from John 14 to 17 is a well-known section of Scripture, and it contains Jesus' words of comfort to his disciples as he prepares to head to the cross and die, and also to depart from this earth and to leave this life and return to his Father. So this is an opportunity for him to speak words of encouragement, some final words to these disciples who have followed him around and engaged in ministry with him for years. Now, the text here says that his desire for his disciples is actually that their joy, it says, may be full. So that's his wish for them. Now, if we're going to understand this passage and make sense of what he's saying here, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is joy? What exactly is it? And is there a difference between the way that we define joy in our culture and the way that the Bible actually defines joy? You know, the uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines joy as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as a feeling of great happiness. Now, if we stop and think about it, these definitions of joy are helpful in some respects. You know, for one, the sense of positivity, a positive feeling that is, is there. And then also the second part, that there is a connectedness with regards to a particular success or triumph or having something that we actually want. But if we're honest about it, I think just going with this definition of joy seems a bit lacking. Something seems to be missing here. And we know that because we think to ourselves, like, what exactly happens when we actually don't have success? What happens when we don't feel happy? What happens instead if we have failure? Or perhaps in the worst cases, like, death actually comes for us and takes the ones in our lives whom we love the most, and we can't get them back. What do we do in those particular cases? Does that mean that our sense of positivity or the feeling of having something that we desire is taken away from us, and therefore our joy also is gone for us forever? See, the Bible's definition of joy certainly includes those things, but the Bible also speaks about more than this. Now, with regards first to this idea of a positive feeling, you know, or a success, I mean, the Bible speaks about, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, the story of David actually returning from battle with his 
uh, fellow soldiers after defeating the Philistines. And the Bible tells us that the ladies of the multiple cities actually came out with tambourines and multiple instruments, and they're singing and they're dancing and they're praising uh, God for what has happened. And we look at that and we understand that, of course, rightly so. You just won a great battle. That's a good reason to celebrate and give thanks. There's an understanding of why you'd have a positive feeling and you had a success. So joy. But as I said, you know, that definition alone of doesn't, isn't all the Bible has to say about joy. You know, joy is used also in very different contexts in the Bible. Another example in the Old Testament would be the story of Habakkuk. So if you read the book of Habakkuk, you realize that it's about a prophet, Habakkuk, who speaks to God about the injustices that are going on in Israelite society at the moment. And as he talks to God about when God is going to act, God actually responds to him and says, well, I'm actually going to do something. I have heard your request in prayer. Behold, I'm going to basically send the Babylonian army through the city of Jerusalem and to the people of Israel, and I'm going to discipline them for their sins. And now Habakkuk, hearing this, is absolutely horrified by this and says, God, are you sure? Is this what? How can you do this? And as he talks to God, as he wrestles with him, you see him change actually throughout the book. He begins actually in the book by telling God how to run the world and what he would do. And by the end of it, he's submitted himself to God's greater wisdom to actually rule the world. And he concludes in Habakkuk 3, 17 to 18 with these words, saying this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, this is fascinating, but... I get it. We modern people sometimes don't hear exactly what Habakkuk is saying here. Uh, Habakkuk here is talking, talking about complete economic and agricultural devastation. To put this in modern language, what he's actually saying is basically, okay, those save on foods has no veggies, no fruit, no bread, and Costco has no pork, or chicken, or dumplings, or beef, or anything else to eat that's meaty. Though TD Bank, or Royal Bank, or CIBC fail completely, and all my savings and everything is now worthless, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy, he says, right now in the God of my salvation. Now, you just have to stop at this point and think, how, how can you say that, Habakkuk? How can you have joy in the midst of these kind of circumstances? What kind of joy do you have? Now, he certainly does not have Merriam-Webster-type joy. So what is it? See, this is my point here. And that is that biblical joy, the joy we find here in the Scriptures, stands in stark contrast to the world's joy. Because joy in the Bible actually is something that lives deep inside the soul and cannot ultimately be shaken by our circumstances, a change in the world. 
See, joy does not look at the storms of life or the condition of your financial or socioeconomic status or what boat you're currently in in society. Joy instead focuses on what is ultimately important. That is, who is captaining your ship through the storm, not whether there is a storm outside. That's what biblical joy focuses on. And you can only have true biblical joy then if you know what actually matters and you know where to look in the midst of the storm for your assurance. Okay. So here's my definition of joy. I think that biblical joy is a soul deep feeling of happiness that is gifted by God as we grasp the beauty of His truth revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the definition I'm going to be using today. And as we walk through our Scripture text, I'll repeat it again, but I'm going to show you where we get this from the Scriptures. Okay? But at the outset, I think it's important for us to understand that when we're talking about joy, joy is not something in the Bible that's optional for Christians. Like, all throughout the Scriptures, we see that joy is characteristic of God's people. See, Jesus speaking to His Father just a little later in John chapter 17, verse 13, says this, These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So, Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Okay? All these verses speak about joy being a part of the Christian life. Now, I want you to notice there's something important in Galatians chapter 5 and this, uh, this subject of the fruit of the Spirit. Notice that it does not say the fruits of the Spirit, plural, but fruit of the Spirit, singular. And this is really important, right? Because imagine you are talking to a Christian who is honest and is self-controlled, but always seems to be unhappy. And that person says to you, look, okay, I... Uh, I'm a basic Toyota Corolla, right? I was just born this way with, this is what my face looks like. I am, I have a good spiritual engine. I am faithful. I'm controlled. But guess what? God didn't give me the gift of joy or a smile on my face. So I don't have the comfort options like heated seats and air conditioning and so on. What you see is what you get. You can't blame me for the fact that I don't seem to be a happy person. See, that's, that's wrong. And the reason why is because it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. Fruit, singular, means that you will be growing in all of these things. As a Christian, they all come as part of the package. Now, I understand that these things may be of varying degrees in your life at different levels, but it doesn't mean that they're completely absent. And sure, they can be different from person to person, but everybody who names the name of Jesus Christ has these qualities about them and will be growing in them. And if you are a Christian, it means that you will have biblical joy. And that's why 
We can read about commands in the Bible over and over again for all Christians to rejoice again and again and again. For example, you read Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Not, not some of you brothers who have the gift of joy, but my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You go to the Psalms, for example, it assumes this, 33.1, sing for joy in the Lord. Or Psalm 100 verse 1 says, shout joyfully to the Lord all of the earth, serve the Lord with gladness and come before him with joyful singing. See, rejoicing actually in the scriptures is a command. Now, most of us would agree that things like murder, stealing, lying, and so on are sins against God, and we are never allowed to do them, even when we are tempted to do so, okay? But how about refusing to pursue joy? That also, brothers and sisters, is a sin. We don't often think of it that way, but it is, especially if joy is a command. Now, this is not to say that believers can never be depressed or need to walk around with a permanent Instagram-worthy smile stuck on their face all the time, okay? That's not what this means. But the point is that joy actually does have to characterize us even through the difficult seasons of life, right? If you're thinking about self-control, you can't say to someone, oh, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a self-controlled person, except when people make me mad. That's not self-control, A self-controlled person is a person who is self-controlled through situations like that. When most people would react and do something negatively, a self-controlled person exercises control through those difficult circumstances. And the same thing has to be said for joy as well. A joyful person, a person who has grown deeply in the joy of the Lord, is one who has joy even in the most adverse and difficult circumstances. See, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18 says this, right? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The command is not rejoice mostly, rejoice 50% of the time, rejoice, it says rejoice always. See, Therefore, we can learn from this that the way that God thinks about biblical joy is that he doesn't think about it as something that is dependent on our circumstances. That's the way we often think about joy in this world, but that's not biblical joy. And failure actually to pursue true joy, divine joy, is actually very, very dangerous. You read, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 47 to 48, and it says this, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. You These are are really stunning words if you think about it. Do you hear what this text does not say? The text doesn't say, because you did not serve the Lord your God, therefore I'm sending your enemies after you. It says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart, I'm sending your enemies after you. See, unlike many religions in the world that say, okay, please God, you need to like do your prayers, give your money, fast, and do all these other sorts of things 
then God's going to be happy with you. The Christian says and learns from God's Word. No, 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 that's not what it's about. God doesn't actually need you to do all these things for Him as if He needs to be served by you in this way. It's not a hungry or needy God. Actually, before you go out and you start doing things for God, the first thing you have to do is something rather radical, and that is you need to do a heart check. And see, what is your heart motivation for serving God? Because it's not just about serving God, but whether your heart has gladness and joy as you serve the Lord your God. So you can't just go out and serve the poor in Jesus' name and say, well, Jesus says I have to. I'm not particularly happy right now. You know, so I'm just going to go feed them, hopefully do my duties. That's absolutely worthless. You're clanging gong, you know, a noisy symbol at that point. There's no love there. You, you have to have joy inside of the heart. God is concerned not just with what we do on the outside, but what's on the inside as well. It's really important to understand this when it comes to joy. Now, okay, I, I get this. I know that in this particular time, you might be thinking, what if I just don't have it? Okay, I know I'm commanded to have joy, but I don't feel like it. Life is just hard right now. I can't will myself to have joy, what am I supposed to do? Remember the definition I gave earlier? That biblical joy is a soul-deep feeling of happiness that is gifted by God as we grasp the beauty of His truths that are revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. See, joy is a gift that comes through understanding truth. And if that's so, it's not a matter then of just psyching yourself up in the morning and saying, I gotta have joy. I gotta have joy today. I feel terrible, but I gotta have joy. It's not what it is. If this definition of joy is true from the Scriptures, then having joy is about actually seeing the world through God's lens and looking at what He says is true what is anchored or what is timeless. Even when our present circumstances are yelling at us and making us feel like times are absolutely hopeless. See, as we go through this, I want us to see six things, six things here that I think the Bible teaches us about the nature of true biblical joy, okay? Number one, joy in God's Word. When Ezra the priest taught the Israelites God's long-forgotten law as Israel returned to the land, the Bible tells us that the people were absolutely convicted. They repented of their sins and of their disobedience. And when it was done, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 12 says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood, they had understood the words that were declared to them. So in other words, what it's saying here is that understanding of the Word of God leads to light, basically, and the understanding leads basically to a time of rejoicing for them. Same thing is true when it comes to the ministry of John the Baptist as he's going about and preaching the Word. John chapter 5, verse 35 says, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. In other words, John's message of sin and repentance was not a downer to the people who heard him, but was actually 
heard and received well by those who desperately longed for a forgiveness of their sins and to be made right with God. And they came in droves basically to be baptized by John. It was a great thing for them. See, the gospel of forgiveness through Jesus Christ is the most remarkable and greatest message that anyone will ever hear in this world. The idea that your sins are forgiven and you can be restored to God in relationship with Him for all of eternity, to be freed from a world of sickness, suffering, and death, there's no greater message than this. That's why Philip the Evangelist's preaching in the book of Acts led many people to faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8, verse 8 says, there was much joy in that city. Romans 5, verse 11, Paul says this, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Right? You hear the language that's spoken of there. Basically, he's saying reconciliation, salvation, jubilation, celebration. It's about being right with God. And that's why we can have such ultimate joy in God's Word because of what God tells us He has done for us as sinful human beings in reconciling us to Himself. That's worth getting excited about. Now, I know that in this world, people get excited about all sorts of things. And depending on who you are, you pick your cup of tea of what excites you. You know, one of the things I read about recently in the news, really, is that it seems that my favorite sport, chess, is uh, making a comeback, actually, right now and being very popular because of some new show called The Queen's Gambit. Now, I know very little about the show, except that the Parents' Guide mentions that it contains some profanity, alcohol, and some sexuality, things that I don't ever remember being a part of my chess training. Um, But apparently, part of the show. And right now, the facts don't lie is that Walmart reports that chess sets sales have gone up 1,000% during this season. A lot of people are very interested in this now. And I, I can't help but reading the news and pondering these things and thinking about this show that people are watching and wonder if perhaps as a result of this, there will be a whole new generation of people who will feel exactly how I felt as I played competitively. You know, there's nothing that really compares to the earthly joy of looking at your opponent and smiling and watching them make a blunder on the board. And then you taking your hand and sailing it across the board and grasping that little plastic or wooden piece and lifting it up over for everyone to see and then clinking it against your opponent's little warrior there and removing it from the board. And that little metallic or that plasticky sound, that click just breaks the dead silence of that room. And then then you see the look of terror on their face as they realize that they've just walked into an absolute trap that you laid for them, and there is no way out of it whatsoever, and they're about to be absolutely destroyed. And And then you also seeing that just you push down the little button on that clock there, and that metallic, wooden, sort of thunk sounds like you're placing a tombstone right over their grave. Just like you just put a cement block over there. It's just so satisfying. Now, if you've never played chess before, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You don't, you don't know this joy. You don't know how powerful 
an 11-year-old boy feels doing this to men who are five times his age. I suspect that this is what Jesus' disciples felt, the 72 of them, when they were commissioned by him to go out and to preach the good news in Luke chapter 10. Jesus had sent these insignificant nobodies out into the world to proclaim the message of the kingdom, and the text says that they came back with joy in their hearts, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But what does Jesus say to them? Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, what's he saying here is demonic foes running away from you? That's nothing. Building a billion-dollar business? That's nothing. Finding somebody to marry whom you love with all of your heart? That's nothing. Checkmating demons in a spiritual chess game? That's nothing. To be saved by God and to read about in His Word for all of eternity and to know that remains true no matter what happens to you in this life? That is everything. And that, he says, is worth rejoicing in. Don't rejoice in all these earthly successes and all these pleasures you have, whether they're in hobbies or things you do for yourself. The reason you rejoice, he says, is because your names have been written by him in the Lamb's book of life. And therefore, you can celebrate, Christians. Find joy in God's word this Christmas as you receive that priceless gift. That's why we can rejoice, Christians. See, brothers and sisters, no matter what our circumstances are, this joy that we have been saved according to God's word can never be taken away from us. And so, therefore, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say, rejoice. Number two, joy in God's walk. Going back to Nehemiah, I love what he said to the people after God's people heard his law. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 says, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, what he's saying, he's like, repent, obey, walk with God, and guess what? God's joy will flow into you and serve as your strength to live. You know, John the Apostle says something very Similar in 2nd and 3rd John, when he's writing, he says, I really have no greater joy than this, than to know that my children are walking in the truth. In other words, when we're walking in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other and with his son, Jesus Christ, and our family and our relationships are made right. You know, when relationships are broken, it's actually very, very painful. You know, many of you who are listening today actually have non-Christian children you know, who have refused to follow Jesus and it absolutely pains your heart. And for those of you who are listening today, I'm speaking to you. Right now, don't give up praying for them. You're right. You are right to think I would give up anything on this earth, all of my earthly possessions, if only I could have my children believe in Jesus Christ. You are right to prioritize their souls in this way. You know, we understand in this world that relationships really are important. They surpass just about everything that is here that we can have in this world. 
the only thing more important than relationships that we have with each other and the love that goes back and forth between us as human beings is the love that we are supposed to have for God. See, relationships, especially with God, are critical. Now, I know recently that Disney has gone and re-released the uh, a new version of Mulan, but I, I haven't seen it, but I remember seeing the 1998 animated Mulan movie when I was a child. Fascinating. The ending scene where the young girl warrior actually returns home to see her father and wanting to bring honor to her father because that's the whole sort of premise in Chinese culture in this, this thing in the movie. She actually comes to him and says, Father, I've brought you the sword of the villain here. And she presents it to him. And also she says the crest of the emperor. And she says, these are gifts to honor the Fa family. And her father in this climactic moment and in his joy takes the gifts and just throws them on the floor. And he grabs her and hugs her instead and says, the greatest gift is having you for a daughter. And we hear that and we say, isn't that right? That relationships matter. To be restored and to be whole again, that is so important. It's so similar, actually, to the story told in Luke chapter 15 that predates Mulan by 2,000 years as Jesus is speaking about not a son who has gone away and dis- not a daughter who has gone away in, uh, to, to gone, gone away, but a son who has disappeared from the home. And when he comes back after wasting his father's money, the Bible says that the father runs to him, grabs him and rejoices and says, all right, bring him the best clothing now. Let's kill like some good meat and get some steak out here, triple A stuff. Let's cook and let's celebrate here. Why? Because my son was lost, but now he is found. All of my possessions, everything else pales in comparison to having my son back. See, brothers and sisters, God didn't just save us from death, but he actually made us his children. And as a result of that, we can actually have joy. Not just joy in God's word that teaches us about how we are saved, but actually joy in walking with God. That means being in right relationship with Him, not estranged, walking rightly with our Father who gazes on us in pleasure. And when you live in obedience to God and you are following His will, the joy that fills your soul is unlike anything that the world can speak about. It's deep inside of you. Number three joy in God's work. And the Bible indicates basically that working for God, unlike maybe some of your regular nine-to-five jobs, is a joyful activity. John chapter 4 verse 36 says this, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together Paul in Philippians 2.17 says, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. See, Paul is basically saying, I poured out my life for you, Philippians, like a cup of water that's being poured out as an offering to God. It's gone. I've done this to see you grow in your joy. Like a, like a parent, basically, who's rejoicing at watching the little toddler take, take their first steps. Like, come on, take the little step, just walk. And you're, you're so happy that the child has taken a step. I mean, you're good at walking. Like, why are you so excited? Be- because that's your child. 
And seeing them learn something like that for the first time and the joy on their faces, they wobble and kind of stand there steadily on one leg and then fall over. You're just, you're just absolutely elated. You realize when you love someone and there's a relationship there, your joy is deeply connected to their joy. And so even though you work for them, you change the diapers, you feed them the bottle, you're sleep deprived, barely can even remember your own name, your joy lies in their joy and their growth. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2.2, 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying, Philippians, make me happy. Make me happy in God. And I want you to do this. Complete my joy. Be united. Have the same mind. Have the same love in Jesus Christ. Follow him. And as I labor for you to make you mature in Christ, and you do these things, I have joy in you like a parent as well. And in your joy, I will find a completion to my joy. I get him, right? I understand him. See, gospel work is very difficult. It's hard. Oftentimes, I'm tired. All of you who serve well diligently in this church and beyond, you are tired. You're a mom raising multiple children who often don't listen to you, and you wonder whether the words you're saying have any effect whatsoever as you speak them again for the 1,000th time, and you, as you raise them for the glory of God. Yeah, you're tired as well. The truth of the matter is this, is when you see them obey and they finally get it, and they can write their own name, or they do those things, you go, yes, yes, my years of parenting are not wasted. 10,000 diapers are not wasted. You can write your own name. I am on the way to making you a successful human being. And in your joy, I find my joy as well. See, Christian work is not easy. Parenting is not easy. The best things in life are not easy. They're painful and they're hard to do. But, oh, to know that these souls will live well before God for all of eternity and you're doing work that matters and will never be taken away forever. Do you understand, believer, why when you look at your work in an eternal perspective, why you can ultimately find joy? That's what gets me up in the morning every single day as I look at the work that I do. I say, God, so difficult. Seems hopeless sometimes. Will there be change? Yes, there will be. Because God will make good on his word. There is joy to be had in working for our God. Number four, joy in God's presence. When the wise men saw the star pointing to Jesus' place of birth, the text says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verse 52, it says that they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. See, Jesus understood that his disciples' greatest sorrow will be the loss of him, which is why he actually encourages them in John 16, 22, by telling them, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I know that the ultimate delight to your soul, the ultimate joy that you can have is to be in my presence, to be with me. And this is really, a, the Christian heart is an echo of what the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11, when he says, you make known to me, Lord, the paths of life. 
In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's the Christian heart as well. See, death for us as Christians is gain and not loss. Because death cannot take everything from you if Jesus is your everything. And if you belong to Jesus, He will welcome us to this place that He's prepared for us saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Master. You know, I love how George Mueller, the great man of prayer who served like 10,000 orphans in his life, spoke about cultivating joy and just dwelling in the presence of God. Mueller said this from his own words, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend to every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. You know, brothers and sisters, let me ask, do you lack joy? And I think what you need to do is wrestle with God as Jacob wrestled with the angel and go to him and say, God, supply me your joy. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me with your joy. You need to fight for it and pursue it. Love the words of Flannery O'Connor who talked about stalking joy. Joy can be like a wild animal that you need to actually go hunting for. Wild animals don't just sit down in front of you and say, you're happy for dinner. Biblical joy is like that. You've got to pursue it. You've got to chase it. And then when you get it, it's so sweet. See, prayer is work. The sweetness of joy does not flow actually without work either laboring for the Lord, believing in His promise, and so on. I mean, everything else in this world, which is really good, takes work. Why not joy? It's this strange notion in our eyes that, well, if joy is supposed to be good, it should just flow to us. No, 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 no. Biblical joy needs to be pursued. God needs to be pursued. Just the assurances you have is that as you chase after God, guess what? He's drawing close to you, and you will not be disappointed. Work for your joy and see God answering. Number five. Joy in God's people. Now, I think that in these pandemic times, we totally understand this, especially because when we can't see our dear brothers and sisters on Sundays, we realize exactly what we're missing now. And actually, all throughout the New Testament, it's very clear that God's people really do love each other. You know, Paul opening his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4 says, As I remember your tears, he says, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. In other words, Timothy, I really want to see you now. It says at the end of the letter, do your best to come to me soon. I want you. You know, John the Apostle speaking in 2 John 1.12 says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. In COVID-19 pandemic terms, John is saying, though I have much to write to you and say to you, I would rather not use Zoom. I want to come and see you face to face. Forget FaceTime. I want to see you so that my joy can be complete. Can you imagine that if heaven was an eternal Zoom call with Jesus? Just something kind of missing there, don't you think? In terms of presence, right? Something about being together with people, enjoying their presence. We're made to be 
with people, to enjoy their presence, to be united, because God himself is in relationship with himself. It's not just the presence of people, though, that we love, but also it's their concern for us that gives us joy. Philippians 4.10, Paul says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The Philippians basically deep concern for Paul actually gave him joy as they supplied his needs. See, Christians are not islands. We're not people designed to like kind of live alone. We're, our souls were designed to be in fellowship with each other, and God designed also for us to be encouraged, to be refreshed, as we engage in spiritual warfare through the ministry of brothers and sisters who actually know our needs and want to help us. Now, I know that, that a number of you often in this church right now during this time don't feel like, well, there's not much I can do. I can't really preach. I can't teach. I don't play a musical instrument. I have no technical skills whatsoever, um, and so on. But the fact is that as you pray for people, you send them food, you give them words of encouragement, you're actually spreading joy. I love what Paul says in Philemon chapter 1, verse 7, about this kind of encouragement. He says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Why? Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So in other words, what he's saying here is that you serving your brothers and sisters, and by refreshing their souls with your words of encouragement or your food or whatever it is, is actually replenishing their invisible joy-o-meter. You're filling their gauge, right? The stomach needs food, but guess what? So does the soul. And the soul runs on high-octane biblical joy. See, the government can feed your stomach in this pandemic by giving you a check so you can buy groceries. But a Christian who delivers you a home-cooked meal or groceries made especially for you is actually way better. Why? It's because the best meals aren't organic, gluten-free, or loaded with protein powder, if that's what you like. Okay. The best meals are the ones that are made with love, and they fill not just your stomach, but your soul with joy. You know, I love the Christian recipe song that I learned as a small child that gives all of us who have no culinary skills whatsoever some hope of feeding others. It says, first you take a cup of faith and stir it all around. Add some joy and laughter until it makes a bubbly sound. Mix in some agape love until it begins to ring. Pour it to a living heart and then serve it to the king. You might be awful in the kitchen, but... If you can, you love Jesus, you can make that recipe. You can make that kind of recipe, and you can serve other people with it. You can fill another soul with joy. Precious thing to have joy in God's people. Number six, last one. Joy in suffering. How can you find joy when your health and your wealth, maybe even your human dignity are taken away from you? whether in prison or by disease. That's so crippling. What do you do when people slander you and speak false things, accuse you falsely of doing things that you never did wrong when you're a Christian? Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, what he's saying here is 
You got an eternal reward. It's secure. You could never lose. Hebrews 10, 34 says something similar. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Right? Like, if you really have hope of something way better, it's very hard to get you down by taking away things that are insignificant or meaningless to you. Right? Imagine you hire two people to do something really boring, like counting beans for a whole year, eight hours a day, and you pay them $5 an hour, okay? But you tell the second guy who's working, say, hey, look, I know this is really boring, but if you stick this out at the end of the day, you can last the whole year counting beans every single day. I will give you $10 million. You're actually on a hidden reality show right now, okay? And so after six months, the show gets really interesting because the camera's watching. The first guy is grumbling. He says, and he's suffering. He's in agony. He's like, this is a horrible job. I don't know why I agreed to participate in this. I dream of beans every single night. It's affecting my life, my children. I see beans. I get nervous whenever I, I hear a bean can. You know, all sorts of things. But you talk to the second guy. And the second guy, how does he feel? He says, every day, getting closer. You know, this is, this is great. I love my job. You know, five more months to go. I'm happy. The first guy looks at the second guy and says, what is wrong with you? You crazy? There's a second guy who says, yeah, kind of. But not really, because I got hope. I have hope. This will end one day. And I will have my reward. See how important it is, church, to understand the importance of having a reward? Because when you have great purpose and a deep sense of reward, you can endure anything. See, and in suffering, God even promises that he's actually building our character. So there's even reward on this earth. And when we die, not everything is lost, but we will have the greatest reward ever. That is the presence of God in Jesus Christ and all of our heavenly rewards. That is the joy that motivates us in this life. That's how Jesus was motivated. You think about Hebrews 12, verse 2, which says about Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus fought with joy. See, brothers and sisters, we wrap this up. Biblical joy is a soul-deep feeling of happiness that is gifted to us by God as we grasp the beauty of His truths that are revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's joy that flows to us from multiple sources. Joy that flows from His Word in the way that we walk, as we work, as we live in the presence of God. Joy that flows from the presence of God's people and even in the midst of our suffering. The world does not know this kind of joy. Has no idea whatsoever. And my question to you today, brothers and sisters, is will you fight for it? Will you fight for it and cultivate it in your soul? Will you believe the truths that are given here and let the joy of God wash over you? Would you also be an agent of joy? as you labor over other people for their joy and so complete your own joy by seeing them mature and grow in their Christian faith as well and be filled by God in return. Friends, if you're not a Christian listening to this today and somehow you've tuned into this broadcast or it's been sent to you, 
I want to ask you, have you experienced this kind of joy? Perhaps you're wrestling right now today because you actually lack joy and life feels absolutely hopeless right now and you're looking for something beyond what you've ever experienced. You know it's out there, but you don't know where to turn. And my word to you today is look no further. Look to Jesus Christ who calls out to you today and asks you to repent of your sins and to turn to him, to give your life to him so that he might fill you with inexpressible and eternal joy. That is what he offers you today. Will you not respond to him? Church, we are the people of God, and we have been given an unimaginable gift with this joy, and that is what we celebrate at Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for giving us this joy, your joy. What an unimaginable gift, God, to have such access to a joy that will never be exhausted, will never fail, will carry us through the sufferings of this sin-filled world until we arrive safely, O God, into your heavenly kingdom. Father, I just ask, O God, that you would teach us, O God, to be a joyful people this Christmas. And for those, O God, who have never heard about you, would you allow them, O oh God, to receive the greatest gift of joy in this world? That is your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name, God, that we sing and we pray. Amen.